0: So if you are a guest or you haven't been here in about three months, we are in the book of Philippians, and we are working our way through, and today we begin kind of our homeward journey. We're in the second half of the book of Philippians. You'll remember Paul is sitting in a Roman jail cell, and he is writing to the believers in Philippi, and he's addressing situations. Some of the big themes we've talked about are are unity and rejoicing, and today he kind of draws back in on that. The last two Sundays, we, we uh, read these two letters of commendation that Paul offered. He spoke first of Timothy, and secondly, of Epaphroditus. But today, he's picking up again on, on one of these main themes that he writes to the Philippians with. And in verses 1 through 3, he gives us a really short look, but a really profound statement. It's something that we absolutely cannot miss. This is something that we absolutely can't skip over past or take a 20-minute nap for. Man, we have to be engaged. So I'm going to speak quick and you listen fast, and we'll make our way through these three verses. Starting in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now next week, Paul goes on to offer a bit of boasting. And he kind of gives his you know, reasons. He essentially, if anybody can boast, man, you don't want to get into a boasting match with me. But this week, we're going to focus on, on rejoicing in the face of persecution. Rejoicing in the face of persecution, kind of what that looks like. So you notice as Paul writes them, he frames the whole thing. He says, finally, rejoice. And he just kind of throws it out there and says, look, before we get into this, before we even talk about what you're supposed to look out for, what you're supposed to be careful of, I want your mind to be in the right place. As we read in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3 and verses 18 and 19, the prophet writes, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the Lord in the god of my salvation the lord god is my strength he makes my feet like the deer's he makes me tread on my high places you see rejoicing at the base of what it is is found in god I mean it is god centered it's not this thing that's controlled by external influences but we see that god is both the occasion of our rejoicing and he is the source he's the one we draw the power for rejoicing from and he's the one in whom we do rejoice and and with that understanding we realize that we're not we're not tossed around by these things we're not tossed around by all the things that go on around us but our tendency is to shift towards being myopic our tendency is to get so mired and so stuck in these things that happen right here in our immediate vision that we completely drop out of rejoicing. You see, in rejoicing, our eyes are fixed on God, they're fixed on Christ, and they're through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, we're not so distracted, we're not so torn away, we're not so disrupted by the things that happen around us. But our tendency is to forget about that. Our tendency is to just be focused on the things that are happening for us. Now check this out. He writes to them, and he says, rejoice. Now, Paul is using here a plural of this, and right? So he's not just looking at one person and says, hey, you over there, you. No, no, you're, hey, could you move over to the side? I'm talking to this person back there. You rejoice. But he addresses the Philippians as a whole, and he says, man, you guys are so unified. You're so together that this command is offered to all of you. And his word is, rejoice. Man, what an amazing picture is that, that Paul writes to them, and he doesn't just say, hey, look, there's a couple people out there that I really wish they could take this word, but they can't. And so I'm going to soften it for them and just say, you know what? Uh, you five over here, you rejoice. You three don't grumble so much, and you three, maybe you just keep your mouth shut, you know. But he writes to them and he says, check this out. You all rejoice together based upon your unity in the gospel, based upon the faith that Christ has worked inside you. So it's a, it's a corporate command. But it's a continual command. He doesn't just say, you know, like last week we talked about Epaphroditus, and Paul says, offer him an enduring welcome. So it's this idea that as Epaphroditus comes back from the mission field, that they're like, hey man, it's great to have you. I mean, it's just fantastic to be here. And so it's not Paul writing and saying, You know, throw him a party, but when that party's over, Paphrodinus is on his own, right? No, I mean, Paul writes to them and says, an enduring welcome. Here, Paul says, rejoice. And he doesn't just say, just for the moment, just for the occasion, or just for today, or just for the, the reception of this letter. But his idea and his intention is that their lives would reflect persistent rejoicing. Day in and day out, moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second, rejoicing. That their lives would be rejoicing. Now, we've talked about the fact that there are some in Philippi who are essentially opposed to Paul. They're they're trying to force things on the Philippian believers. And Paul is writing to them and says, in the midst of all these things, man, rejoice. But remember, that same thing reflects back to Paul. And Paul is rejoicing in the midst of a situation. And where is Paul in the midst of all these things? Does Paul have a really sweet timeshare somewhere in Hawaii that he's, he's traveled there and he's sitting on the North Shore and he's watching the waves crash in? He's like, man, this is awesome. Oh, man, I wonder what time it is in Philippi. I know what I'll tell them. As I watch the waves crash in, things are awesome for me on my North Shore bungalow. You jokers rejoice. I bet that gets them. I'll pin that down. See, life's pretty rough for Paul. He's not riding in isolation. He's not riding in a bungalow on the north shore of Hawaii. He's riding from the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. And his word to them is still, in the midst of this, in the midst of all the trash that's happening to me, in the midst of all the things that are going on, for you rejoice. Man, if Paul can find rejoicing in the midst of his sufferings, can't we today find joy in the midst of ours? Can't we find a reason to rejoice? Yeah, absolutely. If you're in Christ, your reason for rejoicing is salvation. Right? So it's not that you pray and you say, Oh, Heavenly Father, what have you done for me lately? Please give me ample reason to rejoice in you. You know, we're not going before God and it's just, you know, what have you done for me lately mentality whereby we expect, you know, we have this list out and be like, I'm not seeing a track record of good things happening for me lately. So I'm going to put rejoice on hold until God meets up with his part of the agreement. Man, God has met his part of the agreement more than you could ever understand. He saved your life. He saved your soul. You can never do that on your own. You want a reason to rejoice? Salvation is all the reason you ever need to rejoice. His excellence is all the reason we ever need to rejoice. His gloriousness is all the image we ever need to be satisfied in him. So Paul writes them and says rejoice. And then he has this odd kind of deal. You know, he's already committed the the major problem that a lot of preachers do in saying, finally, my brothers, and then he goes on for another two chapters. But Paul here, he says, to write the same things to you is no problem. It's no trouble for me. It's not, not difficult for me to do these things, and it's safe for you. It's a safeguard for you. You see, there's two things that they tell you when you're learning to preach that you should never do. Never tell people finally before you're actually ready to land the plane. And and try not to repeat yourself to the point where people are like, I know what he's going to say next. I absolutely know it. He said it 20 times already. I'm finally starting to get it. You see, Paul writes to them. And here you and I are reading this, and so we start picking up on these things faster. But remember that they would have heard this through an oral medium, right? So somebody comes in and they're reading the letter out loud. And they're, they're drawing in on these themes that begin to hear these same words said over and over again. And here Paul again draws on one of those themes. He says, it's no trouble for me to say these things to you again. And for you, it's a safeguard. And the way that I understand what Paul is drawing on, based upon what we're about to talk about, is he's refreshing their minds for chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, and I hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this is what you're doing, right? He writes to me, he says, this is what you're doing. Unity. And he gives them a picture of it. And then in verse 28, he says, this is what they're doing. These are what the people that are opposed to you are doing. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, don't be be afraid of the people that are seeking to add things on top of you. Don't be afraid of the people that are seeking to tear you down. But rejoice. But rejoice. You see, there's benefit in repetition. Has anybody ever trained a a dog? Or maybe you're just a real sadist and you've trained a cat, right? Right? Maybe cat lovers in the house don't don't raise your hand sorry i don't want to point you out it'd be awkward for you and me but when you train a dog i mean certain dogs are more given to you know wanting to please you and wanting to do the things right right off the bat but for the majority dogs have to be told over and over again right so it's the it's the idea that when you first get a dog and you say you know sit the dog kind of looks at you tongue hanging out drooling all over your floor And you're just like, don't you understand me? And the dog's just like, I love you, bro. Give me another treat. I love it. (laughs) And you're like, sit. And the dog's just like, I still love you. Pet me again. Rub my tummy. I love it. But eventually, the message starts to click in on the dog, right? And so people have a variety of ideas. You You press down on the neck of the dog. You lift up on the tail. You give it a treat. You bring the treat over its nose. And this is how it learns to sit down. I'm not an expert in dog training by any means. Anybody that's seen a dog that I've been around will, will verify that fact. But it takes a certain amount of repetition before it begins to set in, right? And even when it sets in, you have to come back to that same message and that same instruction over time, don't you? Wow. Wow. How appropriate is it that Paul continues to drive this message to them? If they needed to hear it, so do we. If dog needs to have repetition, I don't know what that says about our intellect, but how much do we too need to have repetition? So he writes to them and says, man, people are after you. That's a comforting theme. But rejoice, even in the midst of persecution. Rejoice. He says it's for your safety. See, what Paul wants them to understand is they haven't really begun to buy in to what he's putting out. It's for their benefit that he's offering these things. Paul doesn't just like to hear himself talk. He doesn't just like the way it looks when the copyist is writing this down. But it's actually for the benefit of the Philippians that he keeps returning to these themes. You see, you and I need to be mindful that, that it is for our benefit that we continually return to Scripture. That we find ourselves repeatedly turning to the pages of this book because in it are life. Right? It's not that just we come on a Sunday or we come on a Wednesday or we come on a Sunday night and we receive instruction and then we go and we leave and we come back again the following week. You know, It's kind of the wash, rinse, repeat methodology of Christianity. But that We're so exhaustively found in this word. We're so continually found studying to learn more and more about Christ that it begins to sink in. And then unlike the stubborn dog who can't learn to sit, you and I learn obedience to the Father. We learn obedience and we have fellowship with Him based upon that. You see, having said that and having brought their minds again to those that are seeking to tear them down, Paul tells me, he says, man, there are three things that I want you to look out for. There are three groups of people that are seeking to tear you down. Now before we get into them, it's important that we realize that these people are broadly thought of as, as Judaizers. And so they're not, they're not strictly just Jewish followers of, uh, of you know, the Old Covenant that are seeking to do damage to the New Covenant, but these people are referred to as, as Judaizers. And so in some way they are, are Jews who have converted over or been completed into Christianity— But there's some aspect of their old lives, there's some aspect of their old understanding for what it is to merit favor, for what it is to garner the support of God. And they've imported that into their philosophy and understanding of who God is. And now not only have they imported it into their understanding, but they are seeking to export it to other people. They're seeking to take the things that they think are vital and important to having a relationship with God and go to other people and say, check it out. You can't have a relationship with with God unless you do A, B, and C. And so Paul writes, and he says, look out for the dogs. Man, look out for the dogs. Now, dogs has kind of changed in my understanding. I mean, I love dogs, hate cats. And so when I think of dogs, I'm like, why would he say that? I've had some great dogs in my past. I've had some truly amazing companionship. With a four-legged pooch who I had to clean up after periodically. And after a while I begin to think, who's the master here? I'm picking up after you, I'm feeding you, and all you give me is slobber. How does this work? But Paul writes to them and says, look out for the dogs. You see, in the first century, dogs weren't highly prized. They weren't thought of in the way we do. We didn't spend thousands of dollars for their health insurance vitamins so that their teeth are clean and so that their breath is fresh and give them a nice squeaky toy so they can squeak even while we're trying to sleep. You see, in the first century, dogs were scavengers. Man, they'd go around and they would chew on the carcasses of dead animals. They would eat trash. They were filthy, filthy, disgusting animals. But in the Old Testament, we read of who is spoken of as dogs. Who are the people that are spoken of as dogs in the Old Testament and in portions of the New? Man, it's the Gentiles. It's those people outside of this covenant relationship with God that are spoken of, that are characterized as being dogs. Check out this flip Paul offers here. He says, "Look out for these people that are dogs. Look out for these people who are outside of the covenant relationship of God." He completely flips it. You see, these people think they are the ones that are right, that are righteous before holy God. Paul flips it. He puts it on his ear and he says, "Man." You're right, and they are dogs. Look out for the dogs. He says, look out for the evildoers. Now, these aren't people that dressed in black and wore really scary masks. These are people that, by virtue of the fact that they're seeking to impose the edicts of the law on these Christians, they're doing evil. You see, they're seeking to add something to the requirement of the believers. Now, in their minds and in their thoughts, they thought they were doing the work of God. They absolutely thought they were doing the work of God, and they thought that they were correct and right. But Paul characterizes them as the workers of iniquity, as the workers of evil. Man, he gives them the title, evildoers. You see these people had been made spiritual Gentiles because they were adding requirements to salvation. Now lastly, and the part that really indicates to us that they were in fact Judaizers, is that he refers to them as the mutilators, the people that cut flesh. You see, they took the sign of the covenant of Israel, which is circumcision, and they so perverted it, they so twisted it, that Paul didn't refer to them is you know those who are advocating, some of your translations say false circumcision. But I think a better translation in English is mutilators. You see, because they took this thing that represented covenant faithfulness and they did it in such a way as to try and merit grace before God. And in doing that, they contradicted the gospel. You see, anything we do. In a spiritual way to try and force or try and merit the salvation of God ruins it. It loses its spiritual significance and it's nothing more than a pagan offering. Because we're trying to force this thing, we're trying to do this thing. But you can already see in the Old Testament that God is headed this way, that He's not primarily concerned with this physical sign, with this physical, you know, task. Read in Jeremiah 4:4, 4, 4, that circumcise yourselves to the Lord. It says, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Israel, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. We read in Deuteronomy 16. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we read, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul, and so that you may live. You see, they're seeking to add on these qualifications of Old Testament represent, representation of what it is to be faithful to God. You see, but when I was thinking about this passage and thinking, well, you know, I don't... If I come in on Sunday morning and I say, "All right, people of RBC, this is what I want you to do this week. I want you to look out for three types of people. I want you to look out for the dogs. I want you to look out for the evildoers. And I want you to look out for the mutilators. Then you're not walking around looking for those that are saying, hey look, I think everybody here, if you want to be in the fellowship with God, needs to be circumcised. You're like, you know. I know Matt grew up overseas a long time. but That's generally a pretty standard thing in American healthcare practice. So we don't really see that happening. I mean, that doesn't really make sense, right? If that's the application that we give. But check it out. There are things that you and and I try and add on top of our salvation. And we probably don't do it in such a way that we think, if I don't do this, I won't be saved. But we take it a different way. And we say, because I do this, I'm better. So you're out, and you're at Walmart. You're not going to see me because I don't, I don't go to Walmart. But you're out, and you're at Walmart. I'm afraid of it. It's a true statement. I am. And so you're at Walmart, and you're shopping, and you're, you know, you're buying whatever it is you buy at Walmart, your you know, iceberg lettuce, your green beans, your, your Alpo for your dog, dog treats, your squeaky toy. You're buying some steaks. And you look over and you see what you think is a church member in your periphery. And you see that guy over by the, by the chip aisle. And you're like, oh, I guess he's picking a bag of Fritos. Man, I love Fritos. He passes the chip aisle and he heads to the, uh, to the beer aisle. And you're like, I ain't getting Fritos. Stop at the Fritos! <laughs> And he goes over and he picks up a six-pack and he leaves. In your mind, you're casting a judgment. And you said, man, I don't drink. And this guy does, and he's less of a Christian than I am. You see, we've made a dividing line. Scripture clearly says not to be drunk. But you've made a cultural interpretation to completely prohibit alcohol. And because this guy picked up a six-pack, or maybe he picks up a bottle of wine, You've thrown him out and you said, he is less of a Christian than I am. Or maybe for you, you know, you homeschool your kids. Man, you love your children. You pour into them. You do everything for them. But there's that family down the road, and they send their kids to the awful, ugly public school. And you start thinking, honey, we need to pray for them. I don't, I don't know why they would do that. We need to pray for them so that they might have the type of salvation that we have, the understanding that we have. We've made divisions in our minds. You know, it's just as possible to be on the other side of that equation. You send your kids to public school and, and you look at the homeschool families and you say, don't they want their kids to, to be able to relate to this world? Don't they want their kids to be able to engage people? Don't they even care for the lost? Honey, 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 we should pray for them that they would send their kids here. You see, maybe, maybe your thing is, is movie viewing. And you can't remember the last time you watched something higher than a, than a G rating, which isn't much, right? You're not watching much. I watch G-rated stuff with Bryce, and it's enough to make me want to drive my head through the TV. <clears throat> so you're not watching much. And you hear about this guy that watches PG, and you're like, oh, Lord, he's playing with fun. It's going to get burned. Or maybe PG-13. Or maybe this guy actually has the audacity to watch an R-rated film. Honey, we need to pray for them. You see, but maybe you're not satisfied just praying for them. You start going up to these people and you're like, I just want you to know you're like this close to going to hell because you drank wine. And I just want you to know you're this close to hell because you allowed your kids to go to public school or vice versa. you say, I'm the one going to hell. What about you? You don't even care for lost kids. You're homeschooling your kids. You're the one going to hell. No, you're in hell. I'm in hell. And it's back and forth. You know, it's the movie viewing thing. And so, you see, when we add anything to salvation, and this is the point here. I'm not, I'm not advocating alcohol. I'm not advocating homeschooling or, or not homeschooling or movie viewing. I Man, you need to obey your conscience in those things. But when you sit, when you sit down and you set restrictions on these things and then you turn around and impose those on other people and you think in your mind I'm better than they are my christianity is more secure than theirs is and they need to obey and they need to live the type of lifestyle that I'm living you're a dog you're an evil doer and you're mutilating their conscience You see, we need to live lives in accordance with the mandate that Scripture gives us. But what we don't need to do is import or export, rather, the conscience things that God brings me to unto other people. Now, is this is this me saying that we don't need to call out sin in other people's lives? Absolutely not. How in the world are we going to have unity before a holy God if we don't do that? Is this me saying that, that we just need to mind our own business and you know, judge lest ye be judge not lest ye be judged? Absolutely not. I don't think that's, that's talking about making snap judgments on people. I mean, We need to care enough about the people that we do fellowship, that we do life with, that we would speak truth into their lives, but that we would not judge them harshly according to our own conscience. You see, having given the, the believers there in Philippi three things to look out for, Paul seeks to kind of build them up. He seeks to kind of restore and strengthen their morale. He writes to them, he says, We are the circumcision. This is who we are. He says, these guys are the mutilators. They're the ones who seek out of a physical demonstration of faithfulness to God to exact this thing. But you and I, we are spiritual believers in Christ. And then he he begins to qualify that. He begins to tell them what that looks like. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Do you guys remember the narrative account in John chapter 4? Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, right? The woman by the well. And so he's talking to her, and he's talking to her about, you know, hey, woman, could you grab me a drink? And she's like, what? You're a Jew, aren't you? He's like, yeah, but I'm really thirsty anyway. Would you give me a drink? And so they start entering into this discussion essentially on worldviews. And so she offers up her interpretation of kind of what's going on. Jesus corrects it, and he offers up a correct interpretation of what's going on. And then he says to her, he's talking about worship. And in verse 21 of chapter 4, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Man, she's stunned. They've done that for generations. People in Israel would be stunned. They've, They've been in Jerusalem worshiping the Father for generations. He goes on in verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. And then he says, check this out. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, worship is more than than singing and style. Music and worship is more than just singing. It's it's more than that component of our worship service. You see, worship is actually more than just the singing and the preaching, the delivering of the Word. You see, worship is a life response to a glorious God which pervades everything we say, do, and think. Worship is a life response before a glorious God which pervades everything we say, think, and do. Do you remember the account of Job? Man, Job had it all. He had absolutely everything. And then in a brief moment, everything was taken from him. You Remember the messenger comes back and says, all your children are dead. I'm the only one that lived to report this to you. Another messenger comes and says, fire fell from heaven. All your sheep are dead. All your sheep are gone. I'm the only one that lived to tell of it. Another one comes in and says, Job, all of your livestock, they are gone. All of your family and your support, they are gone. All of your money and your ease of life, it's gone in an instant. And then Job On hearing this news, this is how he responds in verse 20 of chapter 1. He says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. You think rejoicing is not important? You think it's not important that we don't look at the things around us that so easily distract? This guy lost everything. And his response is one of rejoicing and worship. You see, Paul tells them, he says, we worship by the Spirit. So when we come in and we have these, these attitudes and this grumbling that you know, th- things aren't just going the way that I want them to, or maybe you arrive a little late and the doors are closed, and so you have this attitude that's creeping up in your mind. If you're worshiping and it's all you doing it, i got news for you. You might be singing a song, but you're not worshiping. If you come in and and you're like, I don't don't like this. I don't like the way this feels. You're not worshiping anyway. You see, because when we worship by the power of the Spirit, that it doesn't matter what the songs sound like. When we worship by the power of the Spirit, it doesn't matter how you feel because you have humbled yourself before a holy God. And we realize that true worship can only happen, check this out, can only happen if the Spirit is involved. When you came in today, did you think to yourself, Holy Spirit, help me to worship. Holy Spirit, help me to bring glory and honor to the Father. You see, because that's where worship begins. It begins with an understanding that there's nothing I can do, there's nothing Tim can do, there's nothing the praise band can do, there's nothing that Fran Standin, Steve Livingood can do. Worship comes from God. He gives us the ability to worship Him. He says, glory in Christ Jesus. We have this understanding that, man, there's nothing good that Matt Beasley can do, that there's nothing good that even Rosemary can do. Sorry, Rosemary. There's nothing good that even she can do to merit favor before God. And we glory, we rejoice, we have confidence, we have faith, we boast in our weakness because we are boasting in Christ. We're boasting of something external from our own. He says, put no confidence in the flesh. You see, because of the root of it all, putting confidence in the flesh is opposed to the gospel. These people that that provided these three things that they were supposed to look out for, I'm sure said, hey, look, if you really want to take your your belief in God to the next level, employ this. This. It's a fantastic methodology whereby you can find yourself in the next level of worship. You know, if, if you're not doing this, then you need to do that. You know, or you know, they're pr- trying to prescribe some methodology whereby our worship for God is contained within the rigors of this box. Instead, they say, instead Paul writes, he says, Put no confidence, confidence in the flesh. And it's interesting that next week he's going to go and he's going to unpack that for us. But today the question before us is, what are you putting your confidence in? What are you glorying in? What are you boasting in? Have you found yourself, like our fictitious man at Walmart, judging those around you and putting your boast in your higher sense of moral standing? Like our family that's that's judging this other family for sending their kids to public school? Are you boasting in the way and the structures that you've put in place for your children and the safeguard and hedges you've placed around them? Or do you find yourself boasting and, and glorying and reveling in the fact that, man, I am a charter member of this church. I have sacrificed more to this church. I have given more to this church. I have contributed financially more to this church. I have sat through many more painful sermons than anyone else here in this church. I have sung many more songs that I detest here in this church. You see, what are you boasting in? Because friends, I've got to tell you, if it's anything other than, than God who sent His Son Jesus to die for you, then your boasting is in vain and that you're basing your walk on Christ in the power of the flesh. Let me pray for us.